This is the Total Football Podcast. I am Declan Hart. And I'm Andrew Conway. Let's get on with the show. This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. It's the history of the Tottenham. But this action is really incredible, incredible. If you don't know the answer to that question, then I think you're, you, you, are, you are an ostrich. The moment of the weekend for many people came unexpectedly in the game between Brentford and Norwich City. Brandon Williams' face as it turned from anger to joy as he prepared to tussle with a Brentford player before quickly realising it was Christian Eriksen. It was quite a fun piece of levity. Yeah, like it, it, it's probably the most unexpected thing I think we'll see all season. I think it'll probably go down as one of those funny moments of Premier League history. Um, because it was just funny. It was a, it's a, lovely, it's a lovely, humane moment. Um, I don't know what Brandon Williams' history is with Christian Eriksen, whether he knows the guy or whether he just knows him from the incident that happened last summer um, of him collapsing on the heart attack on the pitch. But it's lovely to see that common humanity between foes on the, on the field, which they are, enemies on the field, Warriors. I don't know what other uh, what other kind of um, analogy you want me to make, but it, it's fun to see him just like realizing, oh, we're both human. You were just pulling at me because you wanted to get the ball, and you pulled me down, and I'm okay with that because you're a nice guy, and I think you're a nice guy, and we're all a happy family. Yeah, because like literally any other player at the pitch that does yeah. that too, Brandon Williams probably just gives him a shove back, and you know maybe it ends up with the teammates getting involved or whatever. But he just l- took a look down and was like, "Oh, actually, I really like this guy." And he just gave him a nice little hug, and uh, yeah, it was it was just a fun moment uh, and an otherwise kind of a game we probably wouldn't even be discussing otherwise. Um, so I thought that was enjoyable. Hmm. Yeah, because it was a really, it was not a good game. Right, fair play, Ivan Tony got a hat trick. Well done. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, for the more serious games, I suppose, then in the title race, Liverpool and Man City uh, both made light work of West Ham and Man United, which really I thought showed the uh, the gulf in class between the uh, the title chasing side and the and the top four running uh, the also rounds as they could be called. <laughs> well, that's a bit harsh, Declan. Well, in like, obviously, you know, we can talk a bit more about the Man United game later because they, you know, that was a humiliating result. But like, West Ham have really suffered a bad run of form lately, and, and Liverpool are on, I think, what seven or eight wins in a row now in the league, and and they really are just hitting a groove, um, which is, you know, it's putting the pressure on Man City. They did have to beat Man United in that game, otherwise it would have been, uh, you know, a really close. Three points, yeah. Yeah, with um, still a game in hand, I believe, for, for Liverpool. Yeah. So And they obviously still have to meet at the Etihad as well. Mm. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting as well. Like, Liverpool are getting that edge now by playing first some weekends. And, you know, we're getting to that stage where that is psychologically going to make a difference. So, um, yeah, like, it, as well, like, West Ham did have chances in this game. Like, uh, was it Lanzini or Fornals had a, had a chance late where it's like, how did he even miss that? Um, and, and there were a couple of really good chances in, in the... Um, first half as well but still it just never really felt like Liverpool were going to do anything other than win either like they just had that extra quality to their side um, yeah. and, and, and it was the same with City as well obviously like even yeah. though um, you know it did equalise in that game it never really felt like City were going to drop the, drop any points there. No I think well, if we go to the Liverpool West Ham match first like um, 
it did very much feel like, especially after that goal went in, and and the fact that it it, it did feel like Liverpool were just going to win this no matter what. Like it was going to be one nil. It was going to be whatever you know maybe 2-1 even if West Ham got a goal back in it but they felt comfortable uh, and didn't feel like they got out of second gear at all in that game um, and were within themselves really performing within themselves um, which is kind of the, the the form you see out of league champions it's certainly the form we saw when Liverpool last won the league a couple of years ago um, I, don't, I think it, it, w- it wasn't the type of game Liverpool would have won last season uh, when they finished third I think it was it was a definitely an, an up on that whether it's enough to actually win the league or not is another thing the the interesting thing about the West Ham match is the Bowen uh, the, the the player did he was he at Hull City before this or where was yeah. he immediately before this like a very good player um, West Ham have signed he's, he's done well he's coming to that side and, and been a linchpin really since since probably September-ish um, Liverpool are apparently interested in him uh, so it'll be an interesting thing for Liverpool fans what they thought of him and really how his performance went in that game I think he is an interesting player I, I don't know if he's of that required standard but maybe he could prove me wrong um, Man City on their side sorry if you want to go on uh, I was just going to say the worrying thing for West Ham is Jared Bowen went off injured in this game and is, is going to be out of their, uh, their Europa League clash with, with did they draw Sevilla in that so um, that's a pretty big blow for them <sighs> Bye bye West Ham. Welcome to Sevilla, the the world of Europa League. Um, yeah, I, I I'd be a bit concerned uh, about Poem, but I think he'll be back. Um, I, I I don't think I know West Ham probably would like to target that, but I you know Sevilla, it's their trophy. Just give it to them. I don't know why they they bother having these uh, matches. Just award it to them every year and let them play in the Super League and lose or the it's a Super Cup, whatever it's called, uh, and lose every year. Um, the flip side, anyone, the Man City Man United match, not to go too deep into Manchester United just yet. Um, it very much felt like the last few weeks um, of Man City matches, even Spurs. Um, who were they playing last week? I completely forgotten that they won. Norwich. Was it? No, it wasn't Norwich. Who were they? That was in the in the cup. I, I've, I've, it's completely slipped my mind. But it was identical matches uh, where it was just. Uh, overwhelming force of passing and then eventually attacking numbers in in the final third kept teams penned back in impossible to to break them out uh, they were doing that horseshoe donut um thing where they just pass the ball around the edge of the box until the mistake presented itself and you know eventually every team makes a mistake and a man city pounced on those during this match and you know, I don't. I don't think it would have mattered who they were playing when they're in that kind of form when they're in that kind of ability to kind of make those incisive passes. Um, unless they play badly in defence, which again, I think they weren't great in defence in this game either. I think they Manchester United did carve them open on a couple of occasions and better finishing or better decision-making from Alanga or even Rashford at times um, could have seen something in this game um, go a bit differently, like it did when, when Spurs went to and played City a few weeks ago. Um, but alas, it didn't happen and, and City reaped the rewards and, and, and really took full advantage of it. And, you know, we can talk about Manchester United and... Um, the way they are but uh, like I, I think they would have lost this regardless I I, I and you know you, you have a bad game and you move on I think that's what Ragnac would be t- telling everybody at that club um, although maybe that's not what the, the opinion is in, in the greater society maybe that's not the opinion of the players yeah because like moving on then to my United like that is the point I really want to bring up out of this game is that regardless of really what happened uh, you know it, this is a great example of how Man United just as a club, they just they're incapable of just losing a game and then moving on. You know, they they lose yeah. and then it's existential crisis. It's six hundred million needs to be spent in the summer. Five seven players need to be brought in. Eight players need to be sold. The players yeah. are all cowards. They 
have no <laughs> spine, they lack mentality, they have no passion. Uh, you know, it's all these um, it, over-the-top criticisms. Um, you know, it, it's really quite creating. Um, you know, it, it happens with Tottenham as well to an extent, or it has happened a lot with Tottenham to an extent this season as well. You know, I'm sure Conte probably hasn't helped that with <laughs> some of the comments he's made regarding Spurs in the last few weeks. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's an emotional guy, so we'll, we'll give him that. But, you know, like it comes out today that like Rangnick only thinks a couple of the players have the right... Um, they they have the right determination when something goes wrong. You know, Rashford is thinking about his future at the club. Um, you know, there's the whole stuff with Ronaldo that had kind of come to light before the game had even started because he'd been uh, told he wasn't going to play on the Friday and then apparently went to Portugal um, and had complained about a hip flexor issue that Ragnick mentioned had been an issue in the past. And, you know, whether or not he is actually injured or not is not really clear at the moment. And I suppose it's probably... It wouldn't shock me if there was a clause in his contract that if they um, don't, don't make the Champions League, league. Yeah. then then he can walk away at the end of his contract. Or Has he played his last his match for Manchester United? Yeah, like um, you know, how is is that you know is it that serious? Um, what's going on at the moment? And 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 you know, we could spend twenty minutes talking about whether or not that's a good thing for Man United, but it is. You know, he is the guy that they brought in this season to improve the team. Uh, he's the guy that they brought in on 500 grand a week or whatever as their top um, most paid player like so that it's all already hitting like this in March and you know it's not clear whether they're even going to get top four now after this like just speaks to how much of a disaster of a season they've had but at the same time like you know just move on like they lost you know it happens I I, I agree as well that they could have maybe you know gotten a little something more from this game and it really goes to show like they it was funny like they started the game i thought quite well like they dominated the ball for the first five or six minutes or so and then man city got the ball once and united just like it it was like everyone in their defensive line just fell asleep for a couple minutes uh like it was so simple so you know there's definitely questions that need to be asked about where like those lapses in com- concentration come from uh, how it can yep. be so easy in such a big game to give away a goal so simple as that mm. um, but really um, you know it's been clear for a long time that Man City are a better team than Man United so I think we can move on <laughs> yeah I think that's definitely part of it like I think to answer your very first question why is there such a big deal about this it's because the media is dominated by Manchester United it's because 20 years ago for 20 years Manchester United, if they lost a game, it was newsworthy. They were they didn't lose that many games a season. It would be the big thing of the weekend if United managed not to win a match. And this, we're, I suppose we're slowly starting to filter in this type of um, every defeat is a crisis that comes from the likes of Germany and Spain and Italy, where if Bayern lose a game or if Real Madrid lose a game or Barcelona lose a game or Juventus lose, lose a game, it becomes such a big deal that it's like, oh, how can this? This can't go on. The manager must be replaced. All the players must be sacked. And it starts to permeate English football because there is an anticipation that these big teams don't lose games. Like we said at the beginning of the season, that both Liverpool and Man City were going to drop points this season. And, you know, they they, they have. They haven't been as, as, say, fallible as I thought they might be. But they have been fallible. They have dropped points. And every time they do, it's a big, oh, no, it's over for, like, this is, you know, fraudiola, um, <laughs> you know, when, when Man City lose to Spurs a few weeks ago, even though... You know, they're not a perfect team. They are very good and they have very good aspects to their side, but they're not perfect. Um, and, and people forget that. 
Um, so I think the, the the focus on United and on, on, on that history thing, I think that's creeping into it. Also, the fact that they dominate the media, like we had, if to to go on Sky Sports, like the big the you know the two of the biggest pundits on Sky Sports are are, are Gary Neville, who's all Manchester United all the time. He still says we. Uh, a lot of the times when he talks about Manchester United and he speaks about them like he has the intimate knowledge of everyone in the club and everything in the club and maybe he does and also Roy Keane who we can talk about Roy Keane separately he has, he has a whole other thing going on but they're you know they're, they're people that like dominate the conversation and even mm. Micah Richards like he went off on wild rants on Sky Sports at the weekend um, on Gary Neville and everything like that but he did kind of make a similar point to you um, while also going off and everything being crazy at Manchester United he made the point that you know why should United get special treatment that other clubs don't why should United be thought differently and why should it be an expectation that United win every game that they should have everything right when you know clubs that have spent similar money of similar stature historically um, don't always get it right you're looking at Chelsea you're looking at Arsenal you're looking at Spurs they don't get the same kind of spotlight shown on them in the same way as United they do get criticised they do get things like that but they don't get it to the level United get and it's it's a bit strange um, the final thing I just and just to go to, to Roy Keane a bit you know some of the, the criticism he made of the players not trying not doing their best giving up and stuff like that well that you know that happens to humans <laughs> and maybe Roy Keane isn't a normal human yeah. and maybe he never gave up on a match maybe he never you know you know feigned injury or, or feigned attempts or, or you know got tired or just kind of like chalked it up and say that's it but everybody else does you see it in every walk of life you see it in you know you're talking about individual sports golf or tennis you know sometimes golfers just give up on a round if it's not going well and just take it because it's like it's not going to get any better you see it in tennis players sometimes in a set they're like okay we, I, I think i'm not going to recover from this so i'm not going to waste any energy and i'll come back in the next set and i'll lose this one six one or something like that and I think there was a bit of that with Manchester United. They were like, they, they tried a bit. They tried to get back into it. They tried harder. They got close. They had a couple of chances, a couple of breakthroughs, if not, if not direct shots or anything like that. And then they got punished and they conceded the third goal. And at that point, they're like, City are just toying with us. They're playing with us. What good is it for us to dive in and get sent off? And I think that's what Roy Keane wanted. He wanted to see that fire. But sometimes that isn't what is needed. That's not the clever thing to do in the, in the situation. I think maybe these players are a bit more you know a bit more about them their heads and they're saying what's the point in fighting with this let's keep this tight let's keep and, it 3-1 and let's move on and that is something that Gary Neville actually pointed out in commentary there was a moment there where Man City were you know the crowd were laying and I think it was about 80 minutes yeah. on the clock and uh, they were in their own third just kind of passing the ball around with no pressure and Gary Neville actually uh, came up and was like this is the kind of moment where you just want, or you think a Man United player will just dive in two-footed. Yeah. Um, and they didn't do that, and I think that's something they have done in the past, and I'm glad that they've learned from that. Like, Paul Pogba got sent off. Was it Pogba got sent off in that Liverpool game? Um, you know, but Ronaldo should have been oh, yeah, sent yeah. off in He's that a, Liverpool game yeah. as well. Like, Maguire. Yeah. Well, Maguire maybe could have been sent off yesterday. In this game, yeah, he probably could have. And Fred made some a few bad challenges. He probably wore more than one yellow guard. But the the interesting thing as well on, on in terms of the reaction is you know there's still a lot of people that will come out and say you know what was the point of hiring a guy who uh, hasn't been a manager over the last ten years uh, in terms of Ranić and I still think like that's very surface level like he's clearly been brought in with the intention of him moving upstairs and I do think it's actually if if they do end up giving him a role at the club where he has an actual say in decision making 
giving him six months to actually assess all the players is actually a pretty smart way of doing that because then he'll have an intimate knowledge of everyone that the new manager uh, is now working with, which I think will just embolden um, you know Rangnick to actually know what he's talking about. Um, which you know if 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 that all works out, obviously you know it remains to be seen if it does. Um, but if that all works out, I think it could be quite a smart strategy, actually. Um, so, you know, I think the the whole uh, who's he ever managed stuff is quite ludicrous. And then the other thing as well is that, like, every time I lose, you know, there were a lot of players who played yesterday who, you know, to put it mildly, were terrible. Um, or to put it bluntly, even, uh, you know, they were they were awful. Aaron Wambasaka was terrible. Scott McTominay had a horrible game. Lindelof yeah. didn't have his best game. De Gea, I thought, had a horrible game again. But for some reason, like, the only person who ever actually gets levied the criticism with is Harry Maguire. And, I, and I, in one sense, I can get it. You know, he's an expensive guy. He's an England international. He's captain. captain as well. You know, these he are all kind of... He made a two-footed challenge that probably should have got him sent off, maybe. The, 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 these are all things that come together or whatever. And, like, fair enough, criticise him. But it does feel a bit weird how he's just become this massive scapegoat. Um, so I would kind of almost like to see them lose a game where he doesn't play <laughs> just to see what would happen, what the reaction would be. Um, I'm sure you know, they will. Because, like, yeah. Just because it is so focused on him and I think that that kind of, uh, you know, you're giving Maguire too much credit if you think it's just because of him that Man United are this bad. <laughs> no, yeah, I think it's I think it's a bit ridiculous. I think he is a lightning rod because he's a very tall individual who costs a lot of money who is technically the captain who does a lot of silly things. Um, and a lot of things are forgotten as a result of that. I like honestly, I think it's almost like blaming a puppy for for piddling on the ground is why things like you know Lindelof or Wan Bissaka or McTominay they're out of their depth at that level. They're fine Premier League players. I think Wan Bissaka is a fantastic defensive fullback. Um, I think you know Scott McTominay is a is a pretty good eight when he wants to be or when he's in the right kind of team. I think Lindelof is a pretty decent, you know, European standard centre back, but they're not at the level that you need to be to beat Manchester City to transfer league titles. And when you put them face to face against that, they look pretty bad. You know, Wambasaka against Cancelo isn't a fair fight. Wambasaka against Cancelo, um, Jack Grealish, uh, and uh, Silva overloading him is not a fair fight, and that's what happened. And United weren't able to cope with it. And whether it's down to tactical naivety. Or just letting the players suffer or drown, you know, I don't know. But that's what happened yesterday. And it, it's unfair to blame the players for this, to be honest. And I, I have a lot of issue with the way that players are getting blamed on at this particular for one result. Um, I think I think they're just not there. And I think most teams are this far away from City at the moment, and Liverpool for that matter. And like you said, we it's, it's happened. They're not good enough. They're challenging for fourth. They're there for a reason, you know. They're not challenging for first or second or even third. They're down, you know, challenging for fourth place. And there is a gulf in class between them. And, like, why don't we just accept that and move on? Yeah, and uh, Maynard's loss was Arsenal's gain. They took advantage of that by winning earlier in the day by beating Watford 3-2. And that has moved them up to fourth place now. And they have... What is it? Three games in hand now three as well. Three games in so, hand. Um, yeah, yeah, Mikel Arteta sitting pretty these days. Yeah, like they've started to, to switch things on. I think they've they've slowly become um, a better side. Like I think player for player, perhaps only West Ham in this chase for fourth place have a worse set of players than, than Arsenal in terms of a squad, certainly in terms of the strength and depth. Arsenal do not have it. Um, but they're, they're getting the best out of the resources they have in front of them. I think they've made the most of their 
like this is a team that didn't win a game in January so to to be back and forth with three games in hand is, is quite an achievement um, they're making the most of the resources available to them they're beating the teams they have to beat in front of them which I think is the most important thing while they have a good run of games they're making the most of it because those three games in hand are I think against Liverpool Chelsea and Tottenham which are not easy games <laughs> to have especially when you're Arsenal when you have a history against those sides of losing um, so yeah I think it's important that they got the results when they got them I think there's still a, a big fight in it for this uh, fourth place though yeah like uh, you know I do think that Arsenal deserve a lot of credit because you know going into the season I didn't expect them to be um, fighting for top four I would have said that they'd be kind of more of the same but I do think they've made some very smart decisions off the pitch in terms of moving on the likes of Aubameyang, Kolasinac is gone, uh, you know, there's not not as much reliance on some of the older uh, players mm. anymore. They've trusted the likes of Martinelli and Saka and Emma Smith-Rowe and Odegaard has ended up being much more useful than I thought he might be. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think that they, they've, they've moved in the right path and they've learned from a lot of their mistakes. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah, they seem to be moving towards a proto-Man City vibe uh into a kind of a 4-3-3 formation they push players forward into more attacking roles they're trying to create overloads and attack which is something in the first season of Arteta's reign didn't happen they were very poor at chance creation and it's only really with the you know the additions of Martinelli to the team of or Odegaard to the starting 11 of Saka of Smith-Rowe um that this has started to happen like it's it's taken formula- formulation I'm, I'm not sure if it'll work in the long term but it is it is an interesting project in the premier league to see a team so built around youth that there is very few players at all i think i think lacazette is the only player in his 30s in the really in touch with the first team squad let alone you know someone who actually plays regularly um so you know it's a, it's a very interesting approach to a, a team at the top of the league because i don't think any other team in the top eight or ten even comes close to them in terms of their age profile and you can see like it is giving them a nice base a nice platform for you can see how they can grow in the next three four years and build into something more than just a side that competes for top four i'm not sure if they'll ever i'm not sure if they'll quite have the resources to compete against the likes of liverpool and man city over a whole season but you know i can see them solidifying themselves in the top four now which like 12 months ago i just wouldn't have been able to say so um that that's definitely a credit to Arteta as well, uh, as well as uh, anyone who's got a uh, decision making powers there. Yeah, absolutely, and they can return to their rightful place as a feeder club for bigger teams. Roman Abramovich on Wednesday announced his intention to sell Chelsea following a 19-year stint as the owner of the club. What impact has he had on the sport and what does this decision mean for football going forward? Well, he's changed football. Uh, you can argue it's for the better, it's for the worse. He's made Chelsea into a powerhouse. I, rem- I remember when he joined um, the Premier League and he was kind of not laughed at. I remember he was at the last game of the season. Who Chelsea in 2002-2003. They played Liverpool, when, didn't they? Was it Liverpool? They were playing at, at Stamford Bridge. I think Zola yeah. scored in his last game for Chelsea. Um, secured them top four secured them top four Claudio Ranieri who hadn't signed a player he hadn't bought anybody that that summer and basically they were not going to be in a relegation battle but the anticipation was to be mid-table at best that season managed to get them into the top four uh, which was a Champions League berth at the time and and, you know the story going around which turns out not to be that true that was 
you know, Roman Abramovich was in the crowd and whoever won that game, he was going to buy. That was the whole story around it. It wasn't like that. He was, you know, long since going to buy Chelsea. Um, and he took them on. He That summer alone, they, they bought basically everybody. It was it was a summer like we hadn't seen before. Even Jack Walker at Blackburn hadn't, had, you know, come in and bought a bunch of best, you know, the best players, best young players in the Premier League and, and brought them all to a single side. And it almost happened overnight that they became a, a title challenger uh, from being nowhere uh, the year before. And, um, and the significant thing about doing that, I think it was £110 million was the figure that they spent that summer, which was an extraordinary sum at the time. But it, it's interesting that you compare him to Jack Walker, but the big difference there was Jack Walker was a local businessman who had a genuine love for the club as a fan of Blackburn. Um, you know, and that's what kind of motivated him to help build that club into what would become the league winners of 94-95 with Alan Shear, Chris Sutton, Tim Sherwood and Kenny Daglish as manager, whereas Roman Abramovich came from Russia. He was the only real proper foreign owner of the club. I know um, there was, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy that was on it. Fulham wasn't from England, but he lived there for 40 years. Oh, yeah, was, like Al Fayed, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, was, he was part of the furniture of, of London. Yeah, he's local. You could even consider him a local businessman. <laughs> you, you really could have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Roman Bramovich had kind of come from, you know, basically nowhere to buy yeah. uh, a club the size of Chelsea and turn them overnight into one of the biggest clubs in the world uh, with his yeah. massive amounts of money. Like, that was completely unheard of. Now, it did take a number of years. Like, they did win the league within two years with, with Jose Mourinho being mm. put in charge in 2005. Uh, they did make the Champions League semi-final in 2004 as well and really could have won the tournament that was eventually won by Porto under Jose Mourinho. It was a terrible semi-final defeat to Monaco that really, you know, shattered um, Claudio Ranieri at that club. Um, but, you know, within, you know, it, it took a while. They got their commercial revenues right. They they got, a, you know, a proper marketing people in. They started marketing the club globally as a big brand. They redesigned the crest. They got big sponsors in. And all of this started to really remold Chelsea because the first few years, you know, if you're going to Chelsea, you're going there for the money, mostly. You know, you were if you're Hernan Crespo, if you're Andreas Shevchenko, if you're um, Michael Balak, Michael Balak, yes, you, you know, if you're Jeremy, if you're Lusana Diara, if you're Thiago, if you're Paulo Ferreira, if you're uh, Ricardo Carvalho, if you're Petr Cech. You know, you you weren't signing for Chelsea because you thought you'd win league titles and win Champions League. You were signing there because they offered you an enormous amount of money. And a fringe benefit is maybe you'll be in contention with that if everyone else agrees with you. You know, we saw Rubinho at Man City later on as well. The same type of idea. But within five, six years, they had done it. They had reached the promised land. They were challenging Barcelona in Champions League semi-finals year after year. They were getting to finals, losing to Manchester United on penalties. They eventually won a very undeserving, but at the same time hilarious, Champions League in 2012 by beating Barcelona with that uh, Fernando. Torres goal and eventually just like bamboozling Bayern Munich somehow and, and winning on penalties and that as well you know they'd reached the promised land and became one of the established clubs you know that would eventually form a breakaway Europe, European Super League you know that would have been unthought of before Roman Abramovich came in and he really did change English football you know it, it, there was a hegemony there between Manchester United and Arsenal it didn't look like anyone could come in between them and do anything you know to stop them winning the league titles and they interrupted that you know that had gone on for at least 10 years at that stage uh, of them trading league titles and it stopped entirely it made Alex Ferguson having to rethink how he how he did things at the club and have to remould uh, the club around a different style of football and bring in new coaches and new techniques to bring United back on and then it invited other purchasers to come into Premier League and, and move things forward like Manchester City and, and indeed Liverpool later on as well 
Yeah, like for better or worse, Roman Abramovich introduced basically the idea of globalization to uh, English football. Um, you know, and the Bosman ruling in '95 played a large role in that as well. We'd already kind of seen the foreign influx of players coming in, but you know, Abramovich really brought that through on a massive scale. Where you know that 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 initial team was built on the bedrock of. John Terry and Frank Lampard as the English core, but that was very much a foreign team that had dominated English football under a foreign manager in Jose Mourinho, and they were they were looking to do things. You know, they replaced him with uh, Luis Felipe Scolari, Carlo Ancelotti. They were bringing in, you know, they were hiring and firing managers at a rate as well that hadn't been seen at the top before ever. Um, they were bringing in managers from all over the place. They weren't weren't really thinking about philosophical. Um, ideas of you know like sometimes when a foreign um, a foreign country comes over and takes over a club at a certain area it's because they've just basically like think of Barcelona importing the Dutch style to their club this wasn't the case at Chelsea they were just taking you know it didn't matter if it was Brazilian if it was Italian if it was German they wanted anything as long as it made them successful uh, and that really was the start of that um, in English football we hadn't really seen that before um, and obviously now it's basically you know, that's the norm that, yeah that's the norm like that's that's the way um, Man City work you know if Man United do ever turn things around it'll probably be because they've bought players from various different countries and without a very yeah. with, without a specific tactical style that they're importing um, so but that's Newcastle United looking like that's is, what's going yeah. to happen that's why there's people on the streets of Newcastle now some of that was to do with Mike Ashley being deposed uh, but you know there was people celebrating on the streets in their thousands when they were bought by Saudi Arabia because they knew what it would mean for the club. They knew uh, that this as a transformation like Chelsea could happen to them. And, and it really was the fact that Roman Abramovich came in and, and made himself look like a star, really. Like, he, he was given the red carpet treatment when he turned Chelsea around. Like, that that definitely played a role in convincing the likes of Abu Dhabi and Qatar and uh, Saudi Arabia to come in and say, well, actually, football is an incredibly powerful tool to boost our image. Yeah. Um, even for, Leicester City with the with the King Power group, mm. you know it's exactly the same. They they saw it. They saw the benefit it could have on their business, on their tourism to the country. Like they, it, it had a full, you know, it, it, it's at top and bottom levels of the game. It's at it's at the Man City's, but it's also at Leicester's. It's at whole, you know, it, it every every layer of the game now has has had similar intervention. Yeah, and you know. <laughs> We're not really quite discussing the merits and the and the demerits of that at the moment, but like that is a massive legacy to leave behind. Mm. Um, considering you know he came from absolutely nowhere in terms of the public eye before that. Um, you know I do think this is the right decision that he's being not quite forced to sell, but uh, he has decided to sell. Um, I thought the statement like I don't think it's worth reading out because the statement I think has been uh, devoured quite well by a lot of people as part of, as part of that sports wa- sports washing idea um you know the stuff about him setting up a foundation for the victims of um the ongoing crisis you know doesn't really specify who the victims are you know there's stuff about you always know, going to donate the net proceeds you know doesn't really define what net proceeds mean um you know various stuff like that saying making claims that he he genuinely came in for a love of the club or the love of sport when you know it's very clear that that's not really why he got involved at Chelsea in the first place you know maybe over time he did grow an attachment to the club but I do think that is irrelevant And, and and I think for Chelsea as well like obviously you know it's easy to kind of forget about them but there's a whole generation of Chelsea fans out there who only know Roman Abramovich as the owner of that club which is you know, 
that's a huge shift for them to now have to kind of focus on uh, going forward. Yeah, I think I I don't know what the future holds for Chelsea. To be honest, I am. Will they become like a, a Tottenham? Will they become like an Arsenal and that they have billionaire owners who are effectively absentee landlords and don't really care for their assets as long as it maintains a certain amount of value? Or will they be bankrolled like Roman has? I, I, I'm imagining it's going to be more to the former. Uh, and I don't think Chelsea fam, fans will be happy with it. Uh, for everyone else, it gives an opportunity to get into the top flight of the top echelon of English football. Um, again, because Chelsea's spot was there. Uh, and now it's not as solid as it once was. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they grow and develop in the coming years. Will they be as quick to chop and change the manager? Will they be as able to attract or even afford to pay um, for these immense players that they have in in their teams, like it'll it'll be a very interesting time ahead. Yeah, like there's there's just a lot of uncertainty, and and the fact that there is so many questions about the future of the club. Like you know, there was a time this time last week where we were wondering what the status of the club would be. Like, was it going to exist uh, over the next six months? You know, like those mm. were serious questions being asked because of the the various ties that that Roman Abramovich has and the sanctions that could have come into place and. You know, that's a great argument for why he never should have been allowed on the club in the first place because, you know, he brings the status of the club into question and we can't have that as a community asset ever um, be in danger, um, you know, and we see that at a much lower level, you know, the likes of um, Bury, uh, you know, had to shudder, Macclesfield had to shudder uh, to rebrand, you know, there are clubs in the lower leagues of the English pyramid that have hit, you know, very bad financial times and, and their status as a club has been put into question and this is all of that in a, in a much larger scale and, and it's just an even greater argument for why there needs to be much greater balances and checks for who actually owns these clubs because, you know, they're not like a normal business. Like, they're not like, you know, a bookstore that, you know, couldn't draw any customers so it has to shut down. These are mm. uh, a place for social gathering. These bring people together. Uh, there's universal experiences held and shared between these people. And, and, and they are a community program. Like, they've they've done a lot to to Chelsea's credit in the last few years. They've done a lot to help the community that, that uh, the club is enclosed by. So... Um, you know, it's a great argument for why there needs to be greater scrutiny as to who actually owns these clubs. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it can be vain or to even hope for this, but maybe there will be new rules in place in the future to kind of protect these community assets, to work with them, uh, to ensure that they don't become the proxies of, of nefarious people and that these circumstances don't arise again in the future. Um yeah, because like up to now, football hasn't really drawn a line on what is and what what isn't acceptable <laughs> in terms of club ownership. Like it's been a complete and utter free for all up until now. But it does feel like war crimes is kind of where we're settling on. You know, if you if if you commit active war crimes, then you might get sanctioned. Is kind of the line we're drawing. Yeah, it seems to be a pretty low bar to clear. Yeah. Um, you know, what it means for football going forward, you know, the hope is that, you know, this is the beginning of something like FIFA, obviously, are being tied into the, like we discussed that all last week, you know, the, the, what this invasion of Ukraine means for, for FIFA and UEFA and stuff. But for a club the size of Chelsea to be hit by this, Everton as well have been hit by this as well with Usmanov. Uh, you know, he had a, a giant yacht seized in, in Germany. Uh, the club announced that they basically cut all ties to the sponsors that he brought in, which 
made up you know seemingly a significant portion of their club's revenue Mm. Um, so you know Everton as well are in a similar boat where you know the the status of that club is is being called into question as well and that's another um, pretty sad story too yeah and and like it's funny because Everton you know you thought Everton's financial problems were all wished away in in recent years when when Bill Kenwright sold off his uh, the majority of his stakes over to um, uh, this what's his name um the oh. the guy from America who owns the parts and Usmanov between them, uh, Farad Mashiri, um, Farad Mashiri and, and Usmanov between them, and now and like that enabled them to like get rid of gambling from their sponsorship and to to like work with better sponsors and to work you know better around the community, but at all and to you know plan a new stadium and now that all could be for nothing and they could be back to square one. It's a uh, and Bill Kenroy back in charge like the stress of the man never leaves, um, but yeah. Um, there's more, I'd say there's a lot more ramifications this yet to come out and we'll see how, how things take us. But yeah, it does seem like there's the the Russian Im- impact on, on, on certainly Premier League football is coming to an end. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. We find out this week the first four entrants in the Champions League quarterfinals. Uh, who have we got going through uh, from the second legs this week? Oh, well, the, the the biggest tie, I suppose, is the, the Real Madrid-PSG match in the Bernabeu. The first big, leg big was... Big breaking news this week or today about Kylian Mbappe. He might be out from it, which would be a blow to, uh, to PSG, you'd imagine. To, to put <laughs> it gently. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it could it could open up. You know, I, I I do think that that PSG played pretty well. Like Messi should have probably scored a penalty in that match, um, and and there was other opportunities as well for the teams. But you know, I I still think there's a bit in the tank for Real Madrid. I think they 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 executed their game plan exactly as well. Maybe not exactly as they would have liked. They probably would have liked to create more chances. But they they confined Real uh, Paris Saint Germain a lot in that game, and withheld very well. And it was really a lapse very late on that allowed uh, Paris to, to gain the advantage into that second leg. But as we said, there's no away goals. So they have less to worry about as the home team. Uh, now they, they can go all gun hole for it um, and not worry as much about conceding on the break and, and completely throwing away the tie. Um, so I think this match will be a bit more open than we're expecting, and especially with Kylian Mbappe injured by Idrissa Gay in training. Um, we don't know whether he'll be out or, or not. I think we won't know until the match actually starts. But it could give Real Madrid a bit of, you know, a bit of hope, a bit of belief. And there's enough skill and quality in that squad to to get a victory. There's enough nous in there, especially with the weak underbelly that exists at Paris Saint-Germain. They, they, they do not like it up them. And if the crowd can get on the backs of, of these Paris players, if a couple of chances can go their way, there's enough experience in that Real Madrid side to take it home. Um I'd still Paris still be my favourite to progress, but yeah, I, I I do think Real Madrid have a chance, and I think there is a game in it. And and this is where the lack of an away goals rule will I think embolden Real Madrid because you yeah. know normally if you were bringing a one nil home win to an away tie with the away goals rule, and you scored first, that was it. The you know was all in all likelihood over. Um, so Real Madrid don't quite have that fear. Um, that that could have maybe stopped them, or maybe could have seen them play a similar game plan on 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 this week for the second leg. So, 
you know, hopefully that will mean they will be a bit more open and we could see a bit more of a back and forth game between these two sides because, you know, there's, you're right, like there's plenty of quality in that Real Madrid side. I do think they could have been a bit more adventurous in that first leg and I do think that the game plan was uh, pretty much almost perfectly executed uh, from Carlo Ancelotti's perspective in that first leg, even if I didn't like it. Mm. Um, but I do think the blow of Kylian Mbappe does kind of open it a little. Like I do think it goes from heavily favouring PSG to slightly favouring PSG. Um, yeah they don't like yeah Mbappe was just so good in that first leg and like the quality showed through eventually when he got the goal but like he absolutely tormented Danny Carvajal like it was um, him that earned the penalty in the first place you know it uh, really showed (laughs) and he just bullied Carvajal for the 90 minutes like well well, he had to be taken off he had to be taken off that was the thing and um, he was replaced and it was a replacement that made the mistake and like it showed that even when you had a midfielder coming in or a centre back coming in to kind of help Carvajal cover Mbappe like Mbappe still got the goal um, you know despite two men standing right in front of him and then a giant (laughs) towering goalkeeper in front of him uh, you know, this is this guy's pretty good, Kylian Mbappe. So you, you really need to be at your best to stop him. And with him gone, that may, might you know loosen Real Madrid up a bit as well. Like that, yeah. that might make them even emboldened to to go for it even more. Yeah. And I do think that if Real Madrid score first in this game, you know we've seen PSG kind of wilt under the pressure Crumble. in the past. Yeah. So you know that I, the first like it's a cliche, but the first goal in this game is is going to be absolutely massive in a way that I don't think it will be for the any of the other three games. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with it. The only thing that I could find interesting if Mbappe is indeed out is, like, I, I honestly think, like, Leo Messi, I think, is probably still the best player in the world. He hasn't necessarily shown it to full extent of PSG so far this season, but maybe uh, with Mbappe out, there could be a rethink of how PSG play. They could, you know, employ Messi's skills a bit better, uh, bring back the old days, basically, and have a have a central striker with, with, with Messi and Neymar ha- hanging out behind him and see if that could change things but I think yeah defensively they, they could be in trouble still so it'll be a very interesting match the other one I want to make a, a comment about uh, is Bayern Munich against RB Salzburg uh, which is on Tuesday at 8 o'clock um, Bayern have been terrible <laughs> I think since post Christmas to be quite honest they haven't shown much they, they've allowed the league title race to kind of open up again although I think they're they're probably far enough ahead for it not to massively uh, matter uh, to to anybody, you know, they they've got nine points uh, uh, clear of Dortmund in second place. You know, it's it it's it, I think it's still pretty much a done deal. But you know, Salzburg weren't bad in that first leg. There's no away goal, so Bayern's away goal doesn't really count for much. Um, so it's all to play for. And if Bayern played the way they've played in recent Bundesliga matches, they're going to go out. And if they go out, why would you keep Nagelsmann? Um, because they they seem to be just not playing good football. Definitely reliant heavily on the elderly players in the squad to, to pull them out of problems what's he really done to, to move them along I don't think he's done a great deal and if they get out of the knocked out of the Champions League when they were you could be argued they were pre-tournament favourites along with PSG it, it's a pretty poor return yeah like that would really call into question Nagelsmann's uh, European pedigree because we've seen him embarrassed enough already as it is on the big stage like at Orby Leipzig uh, he was fairly humiliated by PSG uh, a couple of times by United dismantled them 5-0 that time uh, as well at Old Trafford and you know to then lose to Orby Salzburg at, at Bayern Munich would be um, like that would be the biggest upset Bayern Munich have faced in quite a long time in mm-hmm. Europe so um, that that that's definitely one to keep an eye on. Uh, you're right on Tuesday, and like I do think that Salzburg could maybe get something from that. Like that that first leg was quite interesting because 
Salzburg took the lead very early, which kind of, you know, caused us to not really see, you know, a true game because after that they, they properly sat back and just let Bayern have the ball, which I don't yeah. think is generally the Salzburg way. Um, you know, I don't think that's that's how they'll start the game on Tuesday. So um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if they do try go toe-to-toe at the Allianz Arena and how that'll work for them. Uh, you know, yeah. the fact that they don't need to score as well, I think will be... Um, an interesting aspect to it as well uh, and will probably help them yeah um and if the crowd gets on their back as well and gets on Bayern's back you can see some ugly scenes at, at, at that club because it is a mix of old and young players I don't know if the young players have it in them they are very talented but whether they have the guile to actually get through a tough occasion and whether the old players still have enough in their tanks to, to bring them through because it's been a tough few weeks for them um, I think the other matches I don't know I don't think Sporting are going to come back somehow <laughs> yeah. um, 5-0 down going away <laughs> against Man City yeah, I, I think that match might be yeah I think I think they might be taking a shower early in that night and may as well go home again and Inter Liverpool an interesting tie two goals is a big thing to overcome at Anfield for Inter even if they are a good side um, I think they should start focusing on the league again. I think they've got that game in hand over Milan and and to, and to chase back down the Serie A title. I think the the Champions League is gone for them this season. Yeah, like that first leg was really unfortunate in the sense that they were actually much more competitive against Liverpool than I was expecting, and they they hit the post with Chalhanoglu in the first half. They they created a couple of decent chances that just didn't quite register. Like they didn't register Sean Terry at all game, which was um, mm. really surprising considering the um, the areas they managed to get the ball into. Yeah, You know, maybe highlighted uh, most of all was Jekyll's just total utter, utter lack of pace in that game, mm. uh, which was a bit of a problem for them. But uh, yeah, I think there's a world in which that game was a bit closer on the scoreline and we'd be really mm. excited for this game. But um yeah, unfortunately, Liverpool just got the couple of goals and that should be enough to see them through. Yeah, there's just a gulf in class between the top of Serie A and the top of the Premier League. Yeah, and you're right as well that Inter should kind of maybe just focus on the top of uh, Serie A because I don't know who's going to win that league right now and it is very exciting. Yeah. Um, but it could be them uh, if they if things go their way. And, uh, you know, this I suppose in many ways this week will uh, be a weight lifted off their shoulders so that they can free their minds to just think of, of Syria or whatever. So yeah. um, unfortunate that it ended this way. And, they, they, you know, to be fair, Simone and Zaghi got them out of the group stages, which Conte couldn't do. And uh, they happened to just draw against one of the best teams in Europe. It happens. So, um, yeah. you know, no disgrace in losing Liverpool. No, none at all. And, like, in fairness to Inzaghi, he didn't have an easy group stage either. Um so he did very well in, in, in reaching this length and I think Liverpool will be, depending on who they draw next, will be there thereabouts the end of this tournament. Then uh, shifting gears back to the Premier League, there's some big uh, top four games coming up this week. Man United Spurs is the big one we've talked uh, at length about Man United, but Spurs haven't played yet this weekend, so we don't know what their state of mind will be going into this game. But the last time they played was losing to Middlesbrough. So uh, this is the losing to Middlesbrough derby, uh, if I got that right. Yeah, it might just be like Spurs. We don't know how they've done against Everton, but they could be, you know, quite adrift at this point of of, of the the top four race. They could be right on top of it. Who knows? Um, I I like this match. I thought Spurs might have earlier in the season. I thought Spurs might put, show something. I think Nuno was still in charge at that point, and Solskjaer was definitely still in charge of Manchester United. Manchester United ran out comfortable winners. Yeah, that um, was um, dubbed the El Sacchio or the Sacchio yeah. beforehand with the loser <laughs> was bound to lose their job. And ultimately, I think that is what happened. 
yeah and and both ended up losing their job in the long term i while i don't think that could happen this time necessarily um i hold out similar thoughts like i think tottenham would be my favorite swim but like would on paper i would think they should win given you know how you know their week has gone the fact that they'll be i think have they don't have to worry about a champions league match for instance coming up or anything like that um and they'll have a bit more confidence you'd imagine um in them but i still think manchester united will win this match because they're kind of like that at the moment i think they have the quality there to to kick them over the line and i think if they don't win this match they're in a lot of trouble uh for the top four race because they have a lot of tough games coming up and you know spurs is one of the winnable ones and you know the the old saying goes lads at spurs and that's <laughs> the that's the case with tottenham yeah, like this one, it really does feel like if it does end in victory for one, the loser will basically be out of the top four race. Like I know there's a lot of things that can happen between now and the end of May, but just even the the psychological edge of losing this one could be enough to just see them kind of give up. Um, and you know the points gap could could widen. Like uh, Arsenal play Leicester City in the other game, which uh, takes place on the Sunday. So uh, they'll know where everything lies in the table going into that game, which, you know, could go against them, could go for them. Um, you know, Arsenal in the past have been tripped up by, by Leicester, um, even at the Emirates. So, you know, this is this is definitely a banana skin that they, they could get tripped up by. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Leicester have a habit of beating Arsenal um, at, at times when they're inopportune and also Arsenal have that habit with Leicester. Um, but Leicester are marching on the on the right tune now. They're starting to get their act together. Their two wins on the bounce, which is their most wins in a long time consecutively. They they haven't managed back to back victories in a long time in the league. Um, so they they're moving in the right direction. Um, they they have a Europa League match. I want to say this week or whatever they're in Europa Conference League. Uh, so that could impede things in terms of their preparation. And I, I know Brendan Rodgers is not a huge fan of European football. He showed that at Liverpool and indeed at Celtic. It wasn't his forte. And not having the whole week to prepare for a match usually did throw him a bit. So there is there is that to think about as well. But Leicester, you know, they, they could march towards those Europa League places. Now they have three games in hand. Um, they are set where they are. If they win their games in hand, they will climb up to roughly where Spurs are now. Um so you know that could be a uh, you know the target they're aiming for before they probably lose some more players this summer. Then just finally, I want to look at the title race again. Uh, you know, both Liverpool and Man City playing against uh, what what we would call kind of you know decent mid table opposition who could pose uh, difficulties on their day. I suppose uh, first of all, Liverpool are away to Brighton on Saturday afternoon, and then City go away to Palace, who definitely have been. A banana skin for City in the past. Uh, that's Monday Night Football next week. So, uh, do we think that this will be a comfortable three points for those two sides again as they uh, gear up for a title race, or uh, is there potential for some drop points here? Well, you love Brighton, and we know that. But uh, as you <laughs> said to me at the weekend, Brighton are the first team you think that are on summer holidays. Like we're just in March, and they appear to be on on the bus. You know, they they I think they they create a lot of good chances against Newcastle at the weekend. They probably were the better side throughout, but. They just, you know, had two laps of concentration, conceded two goals and couldn't get back to, to level terms. I don't see how against Liverpool at a lunchtime kickoff. I know Liverpool are playing midweek, so maybe a bit will be a bit tired, will be a bit thrown. I don't see how Brighton will put much will put up much against them, to be honest. Yeah, like the thing I will say for this one is that at Anfield, um, you know, that I watched that game, it was a three o'clock kickoff then on a Saturday, and it was quite interesting because Liverpool were kind of 
in that weird area, a uh, weird part of the season where they were playing well, but like not that well, and they were dropping silly points, and they did drop silly points here. Uh, they went 2-0 up in that game, and then I think they had a goal ruled out for handball that would have made it 3-0, and then like at that point it seemed like the game was over before that game had been ruled out, and then suddenly it had been disallowed, and uh, then Brighton got one back through uh, an amazing shot that looked more like a cross. But yeah. uh, it floated in over Allison, and then that kind of emboldened Brighton to then go on and get an equaliser at Anfield. So, um, you know, they do know how to get under Liverpool's skin, and uh, you know, they I think Liverpool will need to be need to have their wits about them uh, going into this game if if Brighton are up for it. Yeah, I still think Liverpool will have enough uh, enough for them uh, at this yeah. point of the year, especially if they don't have a tough match against Inter in midweek. They can maybe rest a few players or bring in a few fresh faces for this match, even and do enough to get through them because um, there's a lot of hunger I'd say in that side to do do well especially in the attacking options yeah and then just looking at Palace against uh, City I think that you know City obviously have the quality that they should be beating Brighton or beating Palace but Palace have been playing well lately under Vieira of course Vieira played for City for a bit there and uh, was f- fell out with the City group over his role at the uh, New York City I believe so maybe there's some animosity there that might motivate him uh, some yeah. extra bit to, to win this one. And, and and Palace have gotten some good results against City in the past. Yeah, like, I, I think Palace were underperforming in terms of their results in recent weeks. I think their performances were better than the results they were getting. They started to turn that around at the weekend. And they're, I, I, I think there'll be a, a match for City in this game. Like Again, City will be just after having their... I know it's not a, a tough Champions League tie, but it's still a midweek Champions League tie. So they, their legs won't be as fresh as they normally are. Uh, and Palace will be working towards this all week and will be looking to frustrate them. It's at Sellers Park. It's a Monday night. It's under the lights. It'll be an atmosphere. If City are in any way weak or any way tired, I think Palace will will take full advantage of that. And and yeah, I'm expecting a close tie in this. And, and given the, the fixtures that are upcoming, every game that Man City play after Liverpool play is going to be a massive, massive pressure cooker. Like they'll have to deal with the fact that Liverpool will likely be right on their tails and if they don't, you know, keep winning games, the, the, that gap of, of six points to three points will become very tight indeed before they end up playing each other. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the beauty of a title race. And uh, yeah. that's hopefully going to set us up for a nice, exciting week of football ahead. So uh, until then, thank you for being here, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Declan. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. This show can also be found on podcast services including Spotify by searching Total Football Podcast. You can also subscribe to my own Medium page in the show notes. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Conbon27, C-O-N-B-O-N, and myself at CheesyHeartPun, C-H-E-E-S-Y-H-I-R-T-E-P-U-N. Most of all, thank you for listening and we hope to be in your download feed next week too. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.